Okay, so the topic for tonight uh, is one which is Parsha motivated, but also a little bit of a companion piece to last week. So last week we spoke about wedding-related topics, although specifically in the context of uh, mixed emotions and the whole idea of balancing weddings and funerals, as is unfortunately one of the major themes of the current moment, and both of which are involved in last week's parsha. In this week's parsha, so we have a theme of marriage also, although it's certainly not what jumps out at you with everything else going on. There's quite a lot happening in Parsha's Toldos. There's actually a funeral there also, but it's very much beneath the surface, but that's happening in the beginning of the Parsha. But there are references to Esau's marriage, and that is not necessarily what you would think would be a model for us. In fact, we're told that Esau's wives uh, caused problems for him and his parents and may have had a big impact on what unfolds in Thithalia with the whole episode with the Brachos. But uh, by the time we get to the end of the parsha, so we're told again that Esau marries a woman named Machalas. And there's a lot to say about what was Esau thinking, but the there is a comment in Chazal that's a topic of focus for us, that the Yerushalmi in Bikurim says that the name Machalas was not really her name, or not really her only name, because we're actually told that her name was something else, actually Basmas. So why does the Torah refer to her as Machalas? So Chazal say, in order to make the point, that a chasson, when he gets married, that this brings about, and we'll say it vaguely now, because we have to try to understand it in a little more depth in a moment, but that the act of getting married brings about an atonement for, say, the chasson for now. So that has implications for us, both spiritual and practical, because there is a practice which is very widespread among the Jewish people, but not 100%. And it's actually more of an Ashkenazi practice. Bavaji Yosef writes in his Truvis that this is not the minig among the Sephardim, but it is a very widespread and revered minig among Ashkenazim, many Ashkenazim, that on the day of the wedding, the chasen and the kala take on a fast. And why that is, what exactly is the basis for this fast? So this is the subject of a number of theories. And if you look in the commentaries on the side of the Shulchan Aruch, uh, Ezer would be the most likely place to look because of Hilchus Nisuin, and the Beishmuel there discusses this. But it also comes up in Orachayim because of the various fast days that are discussed there and the interaction of fast days and other events. So you can find it mentioned in Orachayim as well, and the Magen of Ram over there talks about it. They cite from the Mahara Mints two theories as to what is the what is the basis for this fast. 
And they're very different from each other, the two theories. One is much more practically oriented, and one is more spiritually oriented. And one, that spiritually oriented one, is relevant to what we just saw here, that one explanation is that essentially the chassan has a personal Yom Kippur on his wedding day, that the wedding brings about a atonement, so, therefore, there is a fast connected to that. And that's what this notion that we just heard, that machlas is in order to convey that there's a mechilas avonos together with the marriage, so that is also the basis for the fast, that one should fast in order to connect to that experience. So, I'm again speaking vaguely when I say fast to connect to that experience, because there is some ambiguity here. First of all, why is there this idea of a mechila savonos? So what exactly does that have to do with getting married? Why is it that there is a atonement that comes with marriage? So that's something we'll discuss in a second. But more practically, the issue is, is it automatic or is it potential? Do we say that this is kind of a shas hakosher? that there is the possibility of atonement that could come with marriage, or is it automatic? And that would seem to affect a number of things, because the question of a fast in connection with the marriage is assuming that there is some need to fast, or that there's some advantage to fasting. So that would seem to suggest that it's not an automatic atonement, but that it's an opportunity for atonement, and that it's along the lines of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, without getting into all the discussions about Yom Kippur under what circumstances it is or isn't Mechaper, but certainly how we relate to Yom Kippur, that it is more of an opportunity than a given, and therefore we need to maximize the opportunity by being on our best behavior on Yom Kippur and around then. So is that the idea, that this is an opportunity, and therefore one should fast, and say vidoy has also become the practice, in order to take best advantage of this opportunity, or would we say that it comes automatically? And if it comes automatically, then it's harder to understand why there should be a fast. It's, uh, it would seem that if this is just a get-out-of-jail-free card, so then there shouldn't be a need to fast. In fact, you should have a party instead. So people generally do have a party on their wedding day, but usually that's afterwards. So the idea of fasting wouldn't seem to be necessary at all. So this was a discussion, how exactly to understand the kapara. Is it automatic or is it not? And one could point to the fact that it's being taught in the context of Esav, so that's particularly interesting because do we assume that Esav did tshuva? Is that the idea? Or is it more likely that certainly at this point he's not doing tshuva and therefore if there is any mechila, so then you either have to say that it's an abstract concept that wasn't actually relevant to him, which is then a little unusual that it's being taught together with him, or that, no, it was applicable to him too, and therefore apparently it doesn't require tshuva. So that's the discussion, and part of it is also around the question of what's the logic? Why is it that there should be 
a kapara. So there are a number of explanations. Uh, some suggest that we find other statements in Chazal that are similar. It's not just a chassan, it's also a leader of the tzibur, that anybody who's rising to a new level of responsibility has a clean slate, apparently, that you get to reboot and you get to restart if you take on a new level of achrayis. And maybe that's what it is. You're now making a move towards a family, so taking on certainly greater responsibilities with marriage. So then that's one of the things that Chazal will tell you allows you a fresh start, a new slate, and it's a concept along those lines. Uh, others understand that it has to do with the mitzvah component, and that because it's a mitzvah to get married, so then that mitzvah brings about a schos, and that schos is a source of atonement. Uh, there are those who suggest that it's not just really about the mitzvah, but it's more specific to the marriage, and that it has to do with the fact that a person is not complete until they get married, and if a person is indeed changing in such a fundamental way, they're becoming complete when they were only half a person before that, so that it's understandable that there should be a whole new assessment of where they're at spiritually as well, and that that should be an opportunity to restart. Some understand it more specifically about certain averos, the realm of Arias and the like, and that the idea the Gemara has that having a wife is a protection against those kinds of escapades, so then it's an act of tshuva in and of itself, and maybe there is a kapara for that reason, a person who is now taking on the stability and the protection of having a wife, so therefore that should earn him a kapara for all misdeeds in that area because of that positive step. So there are various interpretations as to what the nature of the mechila is, and it also then connects to the question of, is it automatic, or is it something that you need to do something in order to earn, such as such as fasting. Uh, there are some who bring a proof, or at least raise a question, from the Gemara Mestachas Kedushin, that the Gemara says that if somebody is Makadesh Anisha, and he says, I am doing this act of Kedushin, al-Manasha Nitzadik, that I'm doing this on the condition that I'm a Tzadik. It's only effective if I actually happen to be a Tzadik. So the Gemara says that even if the person is known to be very far from righteous, but we have to at least worry that it's an effective marriage. We have to at least take that into consideration. And the Gemara says, Shema hirher b'tshuva, that perhaps he had thoughts of tshuva. And this is one of the often referenced sources in Elul time because it has something to say about just how easy, in a sense, tshuva can be, that it's something that can be accessed just with the notion of thoughts. So, since we have to worry that even though everything we know about this person is negative, but maybe he has had thoughts of tshuva, and therefore maybe the condition was valid. So, some note from there, so... Why should we say it's only based on the possibility that he may have had thoughts of tshuva? If it's an automatic deal, so then if he gets married, so then that gives him a free slate, then we know he's inside. So, there are some who explain various... Resolutions. There's a difference between having no averus and being a tzaddik. A tzaddik requires uh, more than that. It could be there's a difference between kedushin and nesuin. Some suggest. It also is arguably not really such a question because he made the whole 
marriage contingent on the Sitka. So you could say that it's only going to take effect based on his sidkas. So maybe in a chalam, even if he didn't make it contingent on anything, so then the marriage would have cleared away his averos. But if we don't know if the marriage was really effective or not, so then it becomes a more complicated question. So there's a lot of discussion that surrounds that passage and whether or not that has any relevance to this idea. But that's uh, part of the broader discussion that there is a notion of a kapara that is associated with marriage, and that's one explanation as to why a chassim would fast on his wedding day in order to maximize that possibility and to actualize the potential that he has to achieve an atonement and to basically have a personal Yom Kippur. Uh, my uh, father's Chon Levrach's yurt site is this weekend, and I remember a point that he used to make he was, uh, at one point in his life, a chaplain in the Air Force. And he told me that he had a superior office. This is in the U.S. Air Force. And he had a superior officer who, I thought was a shtikol anti-Semitic. It's also something that Mignona Dioma. And that had a very harsh attitude towards Jews. But for whatever reason, he had the opportunity to tell him about this concept, about how in Judaism we see the wedding as a time of personal atonement and an individualized Yom Kippur, and that this superior officer thought that was such a beautiful idea, it was the first thing that he thought was nice about Judaism, that was able to win over this anti-Semite. So, in any event, it's a powerful thought, and so that's one possible suggestion as to why it would be that there would be a practice of fasting on the day of the wedding. Uh, there is also a different explanation that uh, Mara Mintz brings there that's much more practically oriented, and that it has to do with intoxication. And the idea being that we're worried, apparently, that if one is able to eat and drink and to indulge without too much care, then he could eventually reach a state of drunkenness, and that's a problem. What kind of a problem is it? It's not clear, but apparently that that would have some impact on the marriage, on the process of the marriage. So whether it means that he's not going to be able to have full dust at the time of the Kedushan, or he's not going to be able to commit properly as far as whatever Kedushan requires, it's not spelled out 100%, but this is the nature of the issue, that if you were to become inebriated, then that would impact the effectiveness of the Kedushan. So in order to prevent that possibility, so we say that not only should you watch out not to get drunk, but don't even eat anything, so you shouldn't come close to that problem on the day of the wedding. So that's a very different kind of explanation, and as we'll see, it has different implications. Uh, there's also a third explanation, which is based on the words of the Rokeach, one of the German Rishonim, and he suggests that it has to do with a different concept, that since marriage is a mitzvah, so we have a notion that when one has a mitzvah that he's about to perform, so then you shouldn't eat before performing that mitzvah. So it could be that that kicks in here also, that since it's now his wedding day and he has 
this mitzvah in front of him, so then he shouldn't eat because the same way you wouldn't eat before Tikiyah Shofar or Natilas Lulav, so, so too you shouldn't eat before performing this mitzvah, which is an interesting idea. It may also impact the parameters to some extent. So that is indeed a question, the parameters of this concept. So how exactly do they play out? So there are various nafkaminas of these different understandings. Among them, the question of what about the timing of the fast? And when does it start and when does it end? So, for example, if one gets married in the afternoon, earlier in the day, and there's still time left after the chuppah for the rest of the day, so does the fast stop with the chuppah or does it keep going? So that would seem to be connected to this issue because if it's about preventing intoxication, so then it only would really be relevant until the chuppah takes place. And once that's happened, so then after that, you can let your guard down. You don't have to worry as much. But if the idea is that it's about having a spiritually meaningful fast, so then probably you would say that it should be a full-day fast. And the fact that the chuppah takes place before the day ends isn't necessarily a reason to cut the fast short, even though there are those who interpret this possibility differently and say that it could still be a day that is defined by being up until the chuppah, but it would seem more likely that if it's a spiritual fast in the sense of an actual tightness, so then... It should have the definition of a tightness. That was a discussion many took on this past week, the voluntary tightness of Yom uh, Kippur Cotton, and they were very unsure. Well, students were trying to figure out what exactly the fast should end. It's really a complicated question. What exactly is the right length of time for a fast that one takes on? But whatever it is, maybe that should be the relevant factor here, if it's indeed a fast with a spiritual purpose of trying to get a kapara. So that's a discussion the Svarim have. And this question also goes the other way, that what if the chuppah takes place later, takes place significantly after dark? So should you say then that the fast can stop once it becomes nighttime, or should it keep going past that point up until the chuppah, which would also seem to be the other side of the same coin, but the same issues, that if it's about avoiding getting drunk, so then the whole point would be to keep going until you actually have the condition take place. But if it's about having a fast for spiritual purposes, so then it would be the same length as a normal fast of that type would be. And once you hit nighttime, without getting into the complicated question of whether it would be shkia or tzais or what kind of tzais, but roughly speaking, at least nighttime, so then the fast should be over. Now, that itself brings up an interesting issue, because if that's what we're going to say, and indeed that's how many assumed that Raphael Greenblatt writes in his Tshuva Surah Ephraim, he was uh, notably a Talmud of Moshe Feinstein, and he writes there that his chasen's tish was after dark, and... Ramosha encouraged him to taste something. He said, have a little bit to eat. You've already been Yotzei the fast. It's already nighttime. You've already accomplished the fast. So you might object, if you think about that, that doesn't this actually call attention to a complication here? Because it seems actually that not only that is the fast over, but that it wasn't really on the wedding day. Because if the wedding is going to happen after Shkia, 
and the fast ends the Shkia, or states, however you want to draw the line, so then they're not on the same day. So are you really accomplishing anything? So I think actually, yes, because the truth is, even though we are, according to this tzad, defining the day halachically, but there doesn't seem to be any obvious reason why it should be the same halachic day. So the idea of having a fast for the purpose of a kapara, so why not have that the day before? So it could actually make sense that have a fast until dark and let that be a full fast. But then if the chuppah is an hour later, so then no reason to not eat at that point, then yes, it means the fast is on a previous day, but okay, so then you have the fast in order to maximize your tshuva, and then a short period of time between that and the wedding itself to then move into the state of kapara. And that realization that they're not necessarily on the same day, so I think that has practical implications also, which are not often acknowledged, because there is a question that is often asked, that what happens if one or the other, the chasen or the kala, or both, what if they have some reason why they don't want to fast or they're nervous about fasting? Maybe, uh, understandably, one might feel that they're going to get sick if they don't eat, and then they get very lively in dancing, and it's such a shift, and maybe it's going to be very difficult, to be very headachey and weak on your wedding day. So there are many who are nervous about the idea of fasting on the wedding day, and it's not unheard of, it's not uncommon to get a question about this, uh, just how much should they take this seriously, given that reality. So I think the Eitz is that once you recognize that it doesn't really have to be the same day, so then a good Eitz is to have it be whatever day is closest that you can safely take on a fast without feeling like you're threatening the joy of the wedding day. And then, on the wedding day itself, eat lightly in order to avoid intoxication, and that would probably satisfy both. You'll have the kapara. It doesn't necessarily have to be the actual wedding day. It doesn't seem to be a reason why it has to be the same day as the wedding, as we're seeing here, just to be close to the wedding. And the intoxication concerns so that you'll address separately and you'll address by having less on the day of the wedding that would keep you away from that possibility. Uh, separate from this, so when the question is asked, there's a lot of literature about this, so the, if, without making a judgment one way or another, but let's just posit for a second if the question would come more often from the Kala than the Chassan, so a lot of the forum discuss whether or not the obligation is really the same. So there is a lambdish literature trying to figure out whether the chiyuv of a kala in this minig is comparable in the fullest sense to the chiyuv of the chasen, which kind of neglects the fact, if I remember correctly, I think the way it's brought in the Ramah, is that nogim she'achasen ve'hakala, that it just brings them both equally as fasting. But there is a kind of a lumbish literature that sort of ignores that language and looks at it just abstractly and says, okay, does the Kala have the same level of obligation to fast as the Chassan does? And any one of the Tzadim yields a whole 
discussion of itself and just how it should be applied. So, for example, if you say that it's about a kapara, so then the question is, so does this kapara apply equally to the chasun kala? So here, our source from our parsha tells us in the context of a chasun, does it apply equally to a kala? So that's a question, and that may connect to what we mentioned before, that what's the reason for the kapara? Is the kapara because you're doing a mitzvah? So there's a whole literature about to what extent is kedushin a mitzvah for a woman also. On the surface, it sounds like it's really a mitzvah only applicable to men. Obviously, women need to be involved in order for it to happen, but as a chiyuv, as a mitzvah, it's an obligation on men. Uh, others disagree. There's Iran that talks about in kedushin about there being some kind of a mitzvah type significance for the woman as well. So figuring that out may impact the question of whether there's a kapara not in the same sense. And then the other interpretations of what drives the kapara, whether it's taking on a responsibility, whether it's becoming more complete. So each one has its own literature as far as just how egalitarian the consideration is, just how much does that apply to both the chas and the kala equally. If you take the other side, that it's about avoiding intoxication, so then you have to get a little bit more specific to figure out why are we worried about that, which was not really 100% clear. Is it because of the Das Kedushin and that we're afraid that that may somehow be impacted by drunkenness? So then the question is, so does the woman have the same responsibility in the act of Kedushin? We know that we can't be Karcha, she can't be brought into a marriage against her will, but does she need the same degree of focus in order for the condition to be valid, or is it enough for her just to consent? So that's also a debate. So to what extent would this concern apply equally to both the chasen and kala? Or if you take the rokeach's perspective, that it's about the mitzvah, so then we go back to that question of who has the chiv of the mitzvah. So there's a whole literature that's spawned by that issue of when, if it were to be, let's say, the kala who were to ask, could I be excused from this fast? So to what extent is her obligation equal or similar to the obligation of the chasen becomes a complicated discussion based on analyzing each one of these possibilities. But as I mentioned, so the advice that I give is not to dispense with the fast completely, but to fast at the earliest day or the closest day that won't impact on your Yishuv Hadas at the wedding, and then on the day of the wedding to eat lightly. And this is also advice I give, which is different than the Menega Olam, I believe, but I still think this makes sense, that if somebody gets married on a day which you don't fast on, such as Rosh Chodesh, so the usual Menega, as far as I'm aware, is that most people assume, okay, so they're exempt from the fast because you can't fast on that day, so then they just don't do it at all. But what I would advise is, in light of what we just said, that there isn't really a reason why the fast has to be on the actual day. So if their wedding is on a day, which is not supposed to be a day of fasting, so then just push the fast up to the closest day that does allow for fasting and have the fast then, and don't dispense with this minute that the farm have taken very seriously and is not something to be abandoned without good reason. There's a whole literature if somebody's getting married on the 11th of Tavis, and they're going to, so they're going to have fast two days in a row. We see the post can take it very seriously, and they don't uh, encourage one being cavalier about this fast. So I would recommend being 
as careful as possible to try to uphold this practice and have the fast on a day that is appropriate for fasting. And even if the marriage is happening on a day when you can't fast, you'll be able to still preserve the minig and then have it at the proper time. Uh, say, but did you have Uvda? Because I got married on Hanukkah, on a Sunday that was Hanukkah. So I pushed the fast up to the closest day, it was the previous Thursday, in order to be Mekayim this minute, while still respecting the fact that it should be fasting on Hanukkah. So it could have both. And that's probably the best approach as far as navigating that situation, even though it's not, I think, the most common attitude towards it, it does seem, as far as I can tell, to make sense. So that's uh, another issue, another nafkamina that would probably emerge from this question of how to relate to this issue. There is another kind of set of nafkaminas, perhaps, that I'll mention in conjunction with last week's Pasha. And here to do a little reciprocity, uh, we know that Rebbev Yitzchak of Berdichev was the great defender of the Jewish people, so we want to reciprocate. So we want to defend Rebbev Yitzchak of Berdichev in a Dvar Torah that he said in his Sefer Kedusha Slevi regarding this subject. So in last week's parsha, we read about the mission of Eliezer, and that mission, there is a whole discussion as how exactly to understand what he was sent to do. Was he a shadchan? He was looking to get the right girl for Yitzchak, which that he certainly did. Or should we assume that there was more to it than that? And that not only was he a shadchan, he was actually a shliach likidushin. That it was his job to actually find the girl and then marry her on behalf of Yitzchak, and some suggest it wasn't even just Kedushan, he also did Nesuin B'Shlichas, so there's a, a range of possibilities how to interpret what he did, and it yields a whole fascinating literature, because there's an assumption here that even though Eliezer wasn't Jewish, it's the whole question whether Avram was Jewish, but Eliezer himself certainly wasn't Jewish then, so nonetheless, there seems to be an assumption that he kept Halacha perfectly as far as this process would be concerned, so that you can look to what he did in order to try to discern halachic principles. And not only did he keep halacha, but I believe Yitzchak assumes he also kept Ashkenazi Minhagim, because he understands that he was also observing this practice, because the Pesukim tell us in Chai Yisara that when Rivka's family offered Eliezer food, so he said, I can't eat yet, I can't eat until I do what I have to do, until I said what I have to say, until I do what I have to do. So Rebbe Yitzchak explained, why is he not eating? He says, because he has the job of being a shleich l'kidushin, and therefore he was fasting, as is the minute you fast on the wedding day, so that's why he said, I'm not going to eat until I've accomplished what I need to accomplish. So there are those who object to this shot, and they say they have a proof from the Chumash that it's not correct, because right before this, as we know, he was drinking water, the same water that he had Rivka feed to him and his camels, so apparently he wasn't fasting, apparently he was drinking water, so doesn't that seem to contradict the interpretation of Rebbe Yitzchak of Redichev? So like to reciprocate for all of his defense of the Jews, I think we can defend his shot here as well. 
because the assumption that a shliach likedushin should fast just as a chassan would fast, so that was actually a safek, I believe in the primagadim and in the shuvah, his iris shuvah and others who raised this question, does a shliach likedushin fast? And the truth is, it probably also depends on this whole chakira, it depends on this whole question of what is the purpose of the fast. So, if the purpose of the fast is that it's because of the personal Yom Kippur, that one is getting an atonement, so who gets the Mechilo Savonos in the situation where there's a Shliach Likidushin? So, presumably, it's the Chassan who gets the Mechilo Savonos. He's the one taking on the responsibility, not the Shliach Likidushin. So, if that's the logic, so it would seem that a Shliach Likidushin should not fast. That the chassan who's home, if he knows what is happening, he should fast then. But the shliach wouldn't really have a reason to fast. But if the idea is that the fast is to prevent drunkenness so that the Maisa Kedushin can be carried out with a sound mind and body, so then perhaps that would apply to whoever is performing the act of Kedushin. And that would be, in the case of a shliach, the shliach would be the one who should be fasting. And then the chassan could be at home and having good meals, because he's not actually doing it himself, but the shliach, maybe he should indeed be the one to fast. So if you follow that whole process through, so what you see is that if Eliezer was indeed fasting as a shliach likidushin, so that's sad to say that a shliach likidushin should fast is really based on the drunkenness svar rather than the kapara svar. So if that's the idea, you're fasting so that you shouldn't become drunk. So as we mentioned, we alluded to before, so the Arach HaShulchan and others write that that logic would indicate that it doesn't really have to be an absolute fast, just a approach to try to avoid getting out of hand. And he writes that if necessary, based on this logic, one could eat lightly on the fast day and one could drink water. So that would seem to uphold Rebbe Yitzchak's pshat, because if indeed Eliezer was fasting as a sheikh likidushin, it would seem to be because he holds from this idea that it's about drunkenness, and as the Yerach HaShulchan said, if it's about drunkenness, then you could have water. So the fact that he had water wouldn't contradict this idea that he could be fasting, and we can uphold the Dvar Torah of Rebbe Yitzchak or Bidichev probably could do it a third way also, that if you take the Rokeach's position, that it's about the practice of not eating before you do a mitzvah, so when does that kick in? So when, when exactly does that become binding on the chasun? So presumably he has to at least be somewhat ready to perform the mitzvah. So a person who's not yet found the right kala, we don't say that he fasts all that time until he does. So presumably it only kicks in once the wedding is in play to some extent. So it wouldn't be defined by the halachic day really at all, maybe, or it wouldn't start until there's reason to think that he's in a position to carry out the condition. So it could be that when he was still trying to find the right kala by going through this test, so then he didn't have a kala yet, so he doesn't have any reason to be fasting. But once he's already chosen her, okay, so now that he knows who he wants it to be, so from that point on, he's fasting. But the fact that he was drinking water beforehand, if you take that shot also, wouldn't necessarily be a contradiction to that idea. So 
this question of a shliach likedushin and what exactly is his obligation also seems to flow from how you understand the nature of the fast. Uh, I'll mention another point that uh, another practical issue, which was also on the minds of many people last week when there was a fast declared for the, this past week rather, the fast declared for Yom Kippur Cotton, which is a new idea for most of us. So the concept of a Kabbalah for a Tainus was conveyed to people, which caused a, a lot of sveikos among many people. So if I didn't say the Kabbalah, or I said the Kabbalah too late, or do I have to have a Kabbalah for a half-day tainus? Uh, questions like that. What exactly are the parameters of the obligation to be Kabbalah fast? That's what the Gemara says in Tainus and Dafir Aleph, that in order to have a fast be meaningful, one has to accept it in advance. So is that true here also? Does the Chassan who wants to fast on his wedding day, so does he have to formally be Makabalit the day before? So that would seem to be depending, that would seem to also depend on how you understand the nature of the fast. That if it's just to prevent drunkenness, so it's really a practically oriented fast, and that wouldn't necessarily require a Kabbalah, it's just about the reality of staying away from food and drink, and especially if one's like the Archashokhan, like we just described, if it's not taking on an absolute fast, but just eating very lightly, so then all the more so. But even if one is completely fasting, but it's just for practical reasons, so then it presumably wouldn't really need a Kabbalah at all. But if one's fasting for the sake of tshuva, you want it to count as a spiritually defined fast. So that's where the Gemara says that a Kabbalah would be appropriate. Uh, does that mean you have to necessarily come to that conclusion? Or perhaps not, because you could say that even though normally you won't have to accept the fast the day before, but that doesn't apply to a fast that's already on the calendar. So we don't require that before Yom Kippur, before Tisha B'Av, one accepts the fast the day before. So, where does this fall in? So, if we say there's a minig, let's say especially if somebody is part of a community that observes this minig, so maybe the case to be made that that minig itself triggers this obligation, and therefore it's not necessary to take on an extra Kabbalah in order to participate in that which is already established as a minig in your community. So that might be an extra side. Uh, presumably, to account for all the possibilities, it's advisable for the Hassan Kala to formally accept the fast beforehand, because there is that possibility. But this is the consideration of how the different explanations may affect that question. So these are some thoughts. This uh, fascinating meaning is a reflection of the general reality that we see that the Minhagim of Am Yisrael are very important and have tremendous meaning behind them. And it's always fascinating to note in an area specifically of Minig that when there are questions of application of how exactly they should develop halachically, so you find that the postkim don't just say, well, okay, it's a minig, whatever you do, you do, but there's an assumption that a minig reflects a underlying halachic principle, even though it's not necessarily formalized as a din, 
but that the difference between a minig that should endure and a minig that's not really a valid minig, as Rav Salvech explained, is that a minig is some kind of a fulfillment of a din. So here you see that the poskim who talked about this topic, so they all assumed that there is something substantive behind this minig, and that in order to figure out its parameters, so then we have to try to understand the lumbus of what Claudius Royal has taken on to the best extent possible, so we can know how exactly that would apply to all of these Sveikos. So just to quickly recap, so we talked about the fact that our Parsha calls Esau's wife after calling her Basmas, now calls her Machlas. Chazal tells us the remnants to the idea that there's a Mechilas Avonos that comes with getting married, different theories as to if that's automatic or it's an opportunity, which it sounds like from Esau must have been automatic, although there's a debate about that. And the idea of fasting really seems to follow the notion that it's not automatic and that there has to be something done in order to actualize that kapara. We talked about different theories as to where the kapara comes from. But this is one position of why it would be that we fast on the wedding day in order to maximize that potential, as Myerman's quotes. The other possibility is that it's a practical suggestion, a practical implementation to prevent drunkenness, and it flows from that concern. And we talked about various nafkaminas, the question of what happens if the wedding is in the middle of the day, what happens if it's later in the day after it's already dark, and various uh, approaches to that. And uh, we noted also how that would seem to indicate doesn't really have to be on the day of the wedding, and that's relevant to those who are afraid of fasting on the day of the wedding for whatever medical or otherwise related reasons, or if it happens to be a day when you can't fast for halachic reasons, and therefore it should be pushed up. So it should be possible to push it up to whatever day works and is also close enough to the wedding and to accomplish both. And then we talked about whether a shuyach lekedushin should fast, like Eliezer. We noted that Yitzchak understood that he was fasting for that reason, and how we could defend him against the objection of those who note that Eliezer drank water, and how that could be lishitaso. Essentially, that the notion of fasting as a shuyach lekedushin would be tied into the idea that it's about drunkenness, and if it's about drunkenness, so then maintaining that you are careful to not get drunk and even to have a little bit of water would be acceptable. And we talked about a few other related issues, the question of a Kabbalah, is a Kabbalah necessary, how exactly that connects, and is there a difference between the Chassan and Kala as far as this is concerned? Uh, and those who sometimes bring up the question, practically it becomes a real issue, so there's a whole helpful about this based on each of the reasons. None of the three reasons really is a slam dunk. Each one needs to be analyzed in of itself, whether or not it applies equally to the Kala. But you could also just look at the original text, which really says that Chassan and Kala both have this practice. But one way or another, it is a manifestation of some deep halachic value and a beautiful example of the role that Minhagan play in doing that, and the honoring of Jewish tradition at the beginning of the family relationship, at the beginning of the time when a family is formed, is itself a very powerful <coughs> sorry, very powerful statement. And that itself should have a tremendous meritorious impact on the commitment to the family 
to build a bias nemon of Yisrael and the household is itself the source of minig and of minig respect. That the Torah of the household should be upheld and valued and that's what minhagim are. And this is a beautiful example of just how much these minhagim are cherished and how deeply we try to understand them and of the contributions that that can make to broader Jewish life. So I guess we'll stop there. I have a question. Yeah. What was going on when this minhag was first instituted? So we have How to work... years ago? Yeah. Years ago? It's a good question. We don't know 100%. You know, there are different records of it, but to know exactly when it started is a good question. So we only have these speculative theories that attach it to one idea or the other. They probably also... You said the minhag is mentioned in the Ramah? Yeah, so it goes back at least that far and and before, mm-hmm. and according to Rabbi Yitzchak, it goes back to uh, the shidduch of Rivka and Yitzchak. Okay. But, uh, right. Yeah, so it's a powerful idea and something to think about, and uh, we should all be zochet to only have a freilachazachin to think about such as this. It should be a, a time of shalom, a time when we can focus. Like we said last week, we have to sometimes balance between the happier moments and the sadder moments. So we should zocha that we should be able to give our full attention to the happier moments and to the shilas that surround them. And we should know shalom and simcha because of the amen. Okay, wish you all a good Shabbos. And uh, have a good Shabbos, everybody. You too. Thank you.